Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, everybody out there, and welcome to No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of unscripted television like never before with insight from some of the best in the business of reality television, documentary series, competition shows, social experiment, true crime, and much more. From the profit to botched to love is blind to basketball wives, if it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15-year veteran producer of unscripted television with shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, BattleBots, Outdaughtered, the Rachel Zoe Project, and Pros vs. Joes among my credits. Each week, I talk to the talented people who have made unscripted TV, documentaries, true crime, and game shows, not just something you watch or you consume, but a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe, download, and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz, and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All righty, let's get started. Today, my guest is one of the most talented showrunners, directors, and producers in the business of unscripted television with credits such as Basketball Wives, Making the Band, The Rap Game, College Hill, Married to Medicine, L.A. He's currently the executive producer and showrunner on OWN's long-running hit series, Iyanla, fix my life. Please welcome Sean Rankin. Sean, thanks for being here, man. Pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Right on. All right. So you're on season seven of Iyanla. This is your first year as showrunner. And great. Isn't it great? You uh, jump right in and you got COVID-19 to deal with. What is the status? You know, it's a big hit for OWN. What's the status of the show? So when COVID really sort of came to the forefront, we were two uh, episodes in out of 10. And so we've been on hiatus until about uh, three weeks ago. And we started ramping up pre-production again to get back into shooting uh, the remaining episodes uh, at the end of this month. So, you know, we've been working hard on what safety protocols are going to be and trying to figure out how that operation is going to continue and moving forward in this, this new normal that we got. Yeah. And speaking of that new normal, I've found it encouraging to see and hear about more of our unscripted shows getting back up and running. What are you hearing in terms of those protocols and what protocols are you dealing with, uh, both with the production company and with OWN? Well, I think look, the first and foremost thing is that everyone wants to keep everyone safe. You know, we're, we're trying to get back to some semblance of normalcy and, and some sense of, of how we can continue providing people entertainment in this sort of really difficult and strange time, but we want to do it you know, to the best of our ability and make sure that no one else comes down in this you know, situation. So, you know, I've been working with, with doctors and the network and the production company very diligently to figure out the best way to, to move things forward, whether that be, you know, having COVID coordinators on set, making sure you have, you know, multiple cleaning teams coming through, making sure that people are being tested, making sure that social distancing is being adhered to. You know, the, the spaces that we're operating in are able to give us enough distance between people, even changing the way that you, you shoot scene work and, and how people interact in scenes. Um, it's, it's been a really intense situation with a lot of people pitching in to make sure that this is the safest environment possible. All that you just said brings up a really good point about the role of a showrunner. Um, 
you know, you really do have to be flexible and able to adjust to whatever challenge or problem comes your way. Can you talk a little bit about as an executive producer, as a showrunner, just kind of being able, you never know what's going to come your way and how you adapt to different situations, different problems, and how you've done that over the course of your career? Wow. Um, there's a lot to being a showrunner. It's funny because, you know, you, you see a lot of the people that are coming up these days that are like, yeah, I'm a PA on Thursday and I want to be EP on Friday. <laughs> yes. They yes. Have, they, have no, they have no idea what really goes into, you know, sort of the, the battle wounds and, and, you know, scars that you had along the way that fortify you to be able to sort of do this job. You know, I think it's, it's about really sort of being able to think quickly, pivot effectively, and really be a few steps ahead of everybody else or be able to react when people take missteps, right? Yeah. Um, I think the, the beauty of what my career has been able to, to be is that I, I started as a PA, you know, and worked my way up the call sheet. So I've been fortunate enough to be able to have the, uh, the background in a lot of these departments where I'm able to say, okay, well, this is, I know what we need, or this is how you would best effectively function. And so, you know, having that, skill set has been really beneficial and important um, because as you said, it's, you never know what's really going to be thrown at you. You never know what can potentially change, whether it's, you know, twists and turns with talent or, you know, a scene falling out or a location falling through or, you know, network changes for requests for things and it, it, anything could happen on any given day. You know, we talked about this being unscripted in reality. Well, as you well know, the show is on the other side yeah. of the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. Is there a moment that you kind of, uh, can look back or a show maybe where you were like, yeah, I want to be a showrunner. I want to take my path down a story route or being kind of overseeing shows. Yeah. I mean, I think it really, the, the aha moment as Oprah would say was, was really when I was working on uh, as a researcher for road rules. And this was season nine going into that. Um, I had just been a PA on, on, real world Hawaii. Yeah. And I just saw what that, you know, all the moving pieces and the, the glamour of travel and being on location and, you know, seeing, you know, how excited people got when they were, you know, doing their calls with the network and, you know, the excitement around a premiere and you know, people getting really excited yeah. when story hot sheets were coming back to the office. I wanted to be in the thick of that, you know, yeah. and to be able to take something from concept to fruition was such an amazing thing because you see, you know, you know, in the office, you see people sitting around a whiteboard spitballing ideas sure. and all of a sudden it's on TV. And to be part of that process from beginning to end was something that I was really craving because I'd always been a TV head as a little kid. I mean, that was my babysitter, right? Yeah, but sure. To really be behind the scenes and know how that's getting put together and, you know, seeing all the, the work, but yet the fun people were having too. I wanted to be a part of that. And to see people like, you know, I haven't seen him in a long time, but I remember seeing Matt Kunitz um, when he was the EP on, uh, on Real World and how excited he was coming back and talking to Marilis and John about you know, how great the season was and you know, the MTV excitement around things. Um, and I, I wanted that. You know? and yeah. I started late. You know, I started late. I was 27 when I was a PA. You know? Oh, wow. So okay. I didn't I had, know that. I had a, yeah, I had a better sense of like, okay, well, if I'm going to get into this and I'm going to take literally steps back because I, you know, I was a a restaurant manager and a corporate trainer before that. And so I had, you know, a career with like insurance and, like, you know, 401k and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, you know what, this thing about, you know, picking up people's laundry and running tapes back and forth from Van Nuys for, well, under $400 a week back in the day. 
I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get out of that quickly so that I can move yeah. up the ladder. And yeah. I think that was really the, the motivation behind it because I was excited. I was excited to, to make people feel the way that I felt yeah. watching TV. Yeah. One of the things that you've established yourself as being an expert at or as excelling at is working with talent, right? You did Making the Band and I Want to Work for Diddy, which... I mean, Diddy has a reputation of being difficult. Can you talk a little bit about um, your approach with working with him and kind of how you got the best out of him as, as you could? Look, I mean, I have the utmost respect for that man. I mean, when you talk about, you know, can't stop, won't stop, those are things that that man really employs in his daily life. So, you know, hats off to him for, for grinding and making it to where he is. So I think approaching him with the respect that he deserves, I think, was a real key. And also to be deferential to him in terms of situations that you may not be privy to or smart about that could potentially be better served with his input, right? So knowing when to fight your battles was a key, you know, but I learned, I think the most I did working with specific talent from him. And that was, you know, when to listen, when to, you know, to speak up, when to shut up and when to collaborate, you know, and yeah, he can be difficult, but that's because he wants perfection. He wants something to be what he wants it to be. And I think I learned that there were opportunities to be able to make those things better, but there were also you know, opportunities for you to speak up and say, no, I think it works better this way and actually be right. Um, it, with him, I, I think I learned the ability to uh, address problems in a timely manner, but also to not be a shrinking violet too. Yeah. You know, I think that a lot of times we have... Uh, ideas that were like, well, is it good enough? But then if you really believe in it, you'll speak up about it. Yeah. I learned to really fortify that that skill with him. Um, and I'm thankful for the time I got to spend with him. I mean, you know, 10, 11 seasons of making the band, you know, multiple cycles, and then two seasons of I Want to Work for Diddy. I learned a lot. Yeah. There were long days. Don't get me wrong. Sure. <laughs> there were long days. And some bumps along the road. I, I definitely have stories that I, I may tell you over a drink at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I learned the most I could from him. And to this day, I respect that man immensely. Speaking of tough talent, you went on and became, you know, the instrumental as showrunner on Basketball Wives, uh, a big part of launching the series and then being the showrunner on it. And, I, you know, that was a huge franchise for VH1 to become what it is today with Love and Hip Hop and that franchise, you know, Black Ink. It's pretty much... Ba- the base of what that network is in terms of docu-soaps. Talk a little bit about the beginning stages of Basketball Wives, how you kind of, you know, got got it going. And did you know that it was going to be what it became? <laughs> that is the funniest question because, no, we didn't know. Yeah. We had no idea. You know, our original order was for eight half hours. And when we got to Miami, we had no idea what the show was going to be. Now, it was a very interesting group of women that had very interesting lives. And we knew that we wanted to to get in there and pull the curtain back and show what those lives were like. Yeah. It was, you know, endless money, glitz, glamour, a beautiful place, and women that had personality for days. The question was, what were we looking to show? Sure. You know, and 
how far were they willing to go? And this is a first season show that no one really sort of knew what it was going to be. So navigating that with them and getting that trust built and for them to really show the inner workings of what was going on, um, you know, because their relationships are complex, you know, and these are, you know, women that at the time, some were married, some weren't, you know, some were girlfriends of, some were baby mamas of, that sort of thing. So like, there were a lot of stories that, you know, you knew about, but were these women willing to show? And I think what, you know, the, the beauty of what Basketball Wives became was that after a certain point, you couldn't fake the funk any longer, right? Yeah. So it literally became like, okay, you're going to see everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, the ups, the downs, and, you know, what our true dynamics are. Um, and it, you know, it became an overnight hit, really. I yeah. mean, it went from eight, eight one hours to 12 hours the following season, and then it spun off from there to an LA franchise as well. You know, um, it went very, very quickly. Um, and I, I attribute that to the, our first season cast. You know, Susie throwing that drink in that restaurant. Yes. I mean, that's really what's, what lit the fuse, yeah. you know? And, and Shawnee opening up her friend circle and really showing, you know, what that life is like and what, you know, the, the fun, but yet the foibles could be too, you know? Um, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of, you know, ups and downs in the relationship space for sure. Um, and you know, it's funny, we joke that, you know, the, the show started off as basketball wives, right. but by the end of the first season, no one was a wife anymore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the, the things that, that you and the other producers did well on basketball wives was really bring out who those women were like in, in to the 23rd power. And that's something I always talk about on docu-soaps. Can you talk a little bit about kind of taking who they were, like you said, the glitz, the glamour, but then amplifying their personalities? Well, you know, I have to attribute that to the women. I don't think it's it's the producers 100%. I mean, the women have to be willing to go there, you know, and they have to be willing to open up their lives. It's As we know, it's not easy to yeah. do, yeah. you know, to live your life out loud and know that, you know, the show airs at Monday at 9, at 9.05, the comments start coming. Sure. You know, yeah. and so to, to open yourself up to that and to maintain that for you know, 12, this is now 14 seasons of a show. Jeez, that takes yeah. a lot. Yeah. You know, that takes a lot. And so, you know, I, I attributed, you know, a large portion of that to them. Um, but it's also about, you know, being in that space with them and going on that journey with them. And it's funny, like my partner, Mark and I, you know, we, we talk about the, the ride that you go on with them, you know, you become as emotionally invested in them as a viewer does, but more so because you see everything, not just the, the edited version of it. So, you know, you're there for a birth of a kid. You're there for the, the, the divorce. You're there for the death of a parent. You're there for all those things. And I think that's where the, the trust comes in. I think that's where the ability to have them open up to you because you're there for things. When you're sitting at Mark is, is fantastic in the interview chair. And he's literally in there crying with them as they're talking yeah. about difficult things, you know? So to see that vulnerability from a producer, but to know that it's not, you know, crap you know for the lack of a better term and that it's actually like it's because i've been with you for five years i've been with you for nine years i've been with you for going on 10 years and you've seen everything that goes a long way to, to getting them to to go where they need to go and to feel comfortable in that space to do that and i think that's what the audience really benefits from the hard work that the field producers put in that the eps put in you know it's it's those relationships that allow the show to continue to function and it's not about, you know, a check. I think it's about these women wanting to be their authentic selves. Is there a moment on Basketball Wives when you knew, oh boy, this is going to be a hit? 
Yeah, I, I always hearken back to the, the the night that Susie threw that drink at, at plastic surgery. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, that's what they used to call her. Um, it was that was the moment that a we were like, oh god, the cops are coming, and b <laughs> like this is going to be a big moment. Yeah, and in that moment, she threw the she threw the drink, and then the there was a shot glass that went flying and hit in the, the neighboring table there's a whole thing going on so it was yeah. like chaos and i'm like this is exciting like the adrenaline's pumping i'm like a bachelor one's gonna look like with a good music cue and a good cut you know <laughs> so it was there was that moment where you're like this is this is off the hook yeah and obviously you know coming back to the reunion for that that was like you know i mean the reunion for reunion's sake yes. um we had the studio got locked down. The police came. Oh my yards! Because that's when th- Susie threw that bucket of water on plastic surgery. Yeah. So you knew that these women were willing to go to places that you know most people are like, "Oh, I've got to simmer down." Those were the moments that you're like, "This is the brakes are off and the train has left the station." <laughs> yes, one of the things I've always admired about you and your career and dealing with a show like Basketball Wives is that ability to kind of walk that fine line between chaos. And great story. And th- that's a perfect example of what you're talking about is you have cops coming and it's amazing. Cameras are rolling. And yet at any moment, it could be out of control. How do you find that balance? How do you do, how do you juggle that between that fine line between chaos and amazing television? It's interesting because there are those moments where you know, you know that people react in a very genuine way and they, they're products of their environment. Right? So how people have been raised or what their life experiences are, that really contributes to how they react in a scenario. And so if you're watching and you're listening to story and you know how they're feeling coming into a situation, you know, you know how they feel about a particular individual, you can really assess where you think it may or may not go. You know, I'm always, at least in that particular series, you know, I was very acutely aware of the energy of people in that space and what could potentially happen. And, you know, not allowing it to get to a point where it's, you know, really crazy, you know? Yeah. You'll see season after season after season, you'll see me and Mark jumping in. Sure. And, and really separating people because that's not what the outcome of the show is supposed to be, right? There's opportunity to use your words, to have a dialogue, to have that exchange and not have it come to physicality all the time. And I think that was something that we were really adamant about. You could be upset and you could have a reaction to it, but I was not going to stand by idly and allow you guys to hurt each other, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think so managing that and trying to prepare them um, to have conversations rather than confrontations or conflicts physically was, was important. And in those moments where, you know, you, you couldn't necessarily prevent it from happening, you had to get in and, and mitigate it as quickly as you could. And I think that's really, you know, with us in particular as a production, that was important to us because it's never about wanting to see these women get hurt. It's about wanting them to have, you know, a conversation that may ultimately get them resolution and to get them, you know, to a point where they can continue to function together. How critical was Shawnee O'Neal to the the creative side, the producing side, the development of Basketball Lives? Well, from the get-go, I mean, this is her core group of friends, right? Yeah. So, I mean, and people coming in and out. I mean, these are contacts that she's made as sort of being the the first lady of basketball, right? So these are people that have come into her circle or have, you know, been removed from the circle or whatever the case may be. So very influential from from the get-go. And in terms of really sort of making sure that the, the caliber 
and the, the level that we were operating at was acceptable for you know people of that ilk was really you know something that she monitored and helped us with and you know gave us contacts for and you know really allowed us to tap into her world which was beneficial we couldn't get to half the things that we wanted to get to if we didn't have her input you know it's it's a weird line to walk because you have talent and a producer in right. the same person yeah and know, knowing sort of the the intricacies and sort of the the, the sacred nature of like the interview chair and like you know prepping for scenes that's a weird sort of line to walk but you know she was invested in being a producer but also invested in being a cast member so we did have the luxury of that really sort of playing out well but it definitely was something where you know i don't think the franchise would be where it is without shawnee's input yeah certainly um in the past several years, one of the things you've been able to do is really show your, your flexibility as a producer, doing shows like The Rap Game and making a model with Yolanda Hadid. Your husband is cheating on us, Camp Getaway, Married to Medicine, L.A. How much do you enjoy uh, showing a wide range of skills as a producer so that you don't get kind of pigeonholed as the guy who does docu-soaps, you know, to be able to do a wide variety of shows? I think it's important. And, you know, in sort of the the grand scheme of things, I've been, you know, I'm the African-American producer that does the loud shows, you know, and so, or you deal with, you know, black talent, you know, and that's, that's something that I'm I'm very thankful to have had the opportunity to do, but I'm also mindful of like, I can do other things, you know? So shifting gears from going like rap game to Yolanda Hadid was like the best thing, you know, because like, here you're dealing with supermodels and then you're dealing with, you know, Jermaine Dupree and his burgeoning empire of, you know, young rappers. Right. So being able to really sort of flex those muscles was important for me because I think it is about showing that you do have other muscles to flex and, you know, not getting stuck doing just, you know, loud docuseries where you feel like they're coming to you because you're the face that makes it easier for them. I want to talk about rap game and Jermaine Dupree. You bring him up. You found a way to kind of dig in and do the show in a, in a slightly different way. Can you talk a little bit about trying to reinvent the way you do a hip hop show or finding new, I, I should say, finding new hip hop talent without the traditional, okay, everybody stand in the V formation and we're eliminating one person after each, you know, after each episode, somebody's going to go home. And I thought that was refreshing. Um, I found it to be, uh, made it more fun to watch. Well, look, I mean, we were starting with a sort of small number of people to begin with, right? So I think it's like you proved yourself to get there. Now get as much training as you possibly can. So it's not like you're there for a week and you get booted out of the house. I think it's about that experiential learning yeah. and having you know that entire journey. Because whether or not you get to be the one that gets the contract at the end and gets the chain, that's, that's one thing. But if you're walking away with some knowledge that can benefit you once you leave that house, I think that that's, you know, you should be entitled to that. You know, you've obviously proved that you've uh, got a skill set that allows you to, to operate in that sphere. So why not be able to take as much as you can from this amazing producer as, you know, as you possibly could. And so having those parents there that wanted to be part of their kids' careers and, you know, obviously they had to be there because they were children, but, you know, they, a lot of these folks were involved from a management level and you know, getting to be exposed to the studio and the label and, you know, and Jermaine and really figuring out how that worked firsthand, I think was beneficial to everybody. 
you know, it was more about, you know, having these kids have an experience of a lifetime than it was, you know, crushing their dreams and eliminating them one by one. Yeah. Um, in terms of working with Jermaine Dupree, how did your experience already having worked with Diddy, did that help? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, working on making the band, period, you know, you have a certain familiarity of, you know, being in the studio and watching that creative process and seeing the other people that are involved in those processes and really incorporating the elements of how that all shakes out. Um, so it was a level of familiarity that I think was, was beneficial. You know, JD and, and Puff are very different people. Um, they're both extraordinary producers in their own right, but they have different ways that they operate and they have different collaborations that they do. And, you know, uh, New York, you know, music is different than Atlanta music scene. So there's, there were differences that were, you know, were obvious, but I think that the idea of sort of working with the music mogul in itself was, was pretty standard, you know, um, there were a lot of opportunities to see how Jermaine relates to to kid talent because he, you know, obviously he had crisscross. That was one of the, right. the biggest that he had, you know. So seeing how that came to fruition, you could see how those wheels turned and how he really turned it like bow wow. All those, you know, sort of younger acts, he has a knack for that. And so to see all that, you know, really sort of shake out, that was one of the instances where I felt like this is this man's forte let me step back and, and document it. And with the DP and the directors and my, my partner on that show, Adam, uh, really sort of document how this all unfolds. But the deference to this man is clearly, you know, staked out in this area in the industry and done it very well. What impressed you the most um, about Jermaine Dupri? Just his ability when he's in the studio with the people he's collaborating with, he is, you know, when you see somebody working on something they love, you know, it's, you see them at their most lively. And so to see him behind those boards and to, you know, see him working with talent in the booth, that was a privilege. You know, there's something when you can see somebody, literally their heart beating and their brain working with something that they really love, it, it, there's nothing like it, you know? And so I would, I would say that, you know, working with him in that regard was super interesting, you know, and to see sort of how that all played out, how he worked with the parents and how he worked with the kids specifically. Um, it's interesting because that's, it's a knack. There's, yeah. there's a big balance that has to happen there, right? You know, you have parents that either are living vicariously through their kid or their momagers that are pushing or dadagers that are pushing their kid to, to do things because they wanted to do them. Um, but even you have kids that you got to keep their focus, you know, and you gotta, you gotta take these kids that are literally growing up very quickly um, and get the best that you can out of them when they may be thinking about like, I'd rather be at the, at the roller rink or I'd rather be yeah. at home on my Xbox. Yes. You know, and he, and, and he did that very well. He did it very well. And, and now you have, this opportunity is the showrunner of Iyanla Fix My Life. Uh, you're working with Iyanla Van Zant, um, and it's an, another big challenge for you. It's a completely different show. This is a, a transformational show. It's very emotional. Are you excited to have this very different type of show um, where she's helping people? I love it. You know, Miss V is amazing. She is fantastic, and she's the kind of person that when you're working with her. You know, you really see somebody who's, uh, I use the word fearless, you know, because she's not afraid to confront and make you see the mirror that's being held in front of your face, you know, and there's this healing work that she does, you know, it's, for her, this 
is not a TV show, it's a ministry, yeah. you know? And so to have somebody that's passionate with the changes that she's bringing about and the lives that she's shaping, it, it's a different, it's a different vibe altogether, you know? Um, it has been a privilege to work with her. It's been a privilege to really sort of see these stories unfold and to know that you're walking into a situation where people are coming in fractured, broken, upset, whatever the case may be, and to see resolution and progress and healing happen over the course of the time that they're with her, there's, there's not really a better feeling, you know? Sometimes, you know, you, you go into the other, these other shows and, you know, you're like, okay, well, that's a mess. Okay, we'll wait to the reunion. <laughs> you know, yeah. we'll, you know, we'll wait to the reunion and see if we can fix it, you know? And yeah. Is there ever any healing? But, you know, this, you know that there's going to be something tangible on the other side of it. Sure. That's going to be beneficial to that person or to that family. And, you know, it, it just feels better. It feels good, you know? Yeah. It feels good to know that you're doing some good in the world. Are you approaching the show any differently than you do a basketball wives or a married to medicine or even a rap game? Um, or is your approach, your preparation the same? Well, this is a very different show. You know, this is not sort of a plug and play and let it go. This is you know, very much like people are coming in with specific needs and issues to address. And, you know, they're, they're having this, this time with, with Miss V and, you know, dealing with like live coaches and things and, and dealing with field producers and being interviewed about specific material. Um, it is different in that regard. So the approach is to really, again, provide a space, safe space for these people to interact in, but also to, to you know, help to fortify the environment with, with Miss V, with you know, the tools that she needs and the exercises that she really wants to, to teach these people um, to really sort of help bring their healing to the forefront. So it is a, it is a different approach to things um, because we're, we're dealing with exercises and we're dealing with conferences between different people and dealing with counseling sessions versus ladies who lunch and you know the, the local fundraiser for yeah. for whatever. Sure, you know, it is a very different thing. Yeah, you mentioned before being known as the black showrunner or a guy who deals with a black cast. I've done a couple of episodes where uh, you know I had Ricardo Handy come on and talk about bringing more inclusion um, in terms of black editors. Um, I had Carlos King come on and talk about being a owner of a black company. What kind of changes do you feel like need to be made? Do you see things in the unscripted industry that you'd like to see change? Yeah, it's funny because for the longest time, you know, there used to be the, the joke that there's only three of us, and that was me, Carlos, and Viola. And we were in Paris uh, one New Year's Eve, and we're all at the same party. Leola has a New Year's Eve party in Paris usually every year. And we took a picture together, and we're like, um, this is either an illegal gathering or would not be covered by insurance because the three of us can clearly not be in the same place at the same time. <laughs> so, you know, it, but you don't, you don't see a lot yeah. of, of black showrunners. And I think... You know, there there have been strides made in the last few months, I guess. But I mean, obviously, the industry isn't reflecting those at the moment. But yeah. the awareness is there now. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's it's about cultivating talent and giving people the opportunity to to rise in those ranks. That's what I'm looking for. There wasn't a lot of you know, each one teach one. You know, and I sure. think that was really important to me. You know, I was able to get you know, like Julie. She taught me from the ground up. You know and illustrating examples of like, you know, what good producers are and really sort of making sure that, you know, people that you are engaging with, that you're talking to them and finding out, you know, what they want to do and what direction they can potentially be you know, looking to go in and how you can help facilitate that. 
I think it's really about you know production companies acknowledging that that's the sort of stuff that needs to take place. And it's also about networks too, looking for specific types of talent, you know, and they're really good. Like on the writer side, and on the scripted side of things like diversity inclusion workshops and those sort of things. And now you're starting to see, you know, diversity and inclusion on the producer side, but it's yeah. about making sure that that goes from just being a roster that you turn in to how are you facilitating that growth and that, you know, next crop of producers how are you getting them that hands-on experience? What are the people that you're bringing in to talk to them? You know, how are we talking about getting like internships or like, you know, shadowing people, those kind of things so that they become more familiar faces, you know? Um, I'd, I would like to be able to see that happen, you know? And I think that people are primed and ready for that now. Um, so hopefully that, that can continue to forward. Things like Ricarlo, you know, putting together that, um, that editor situation, those are the kind of things that you need and that, I mean, that was born out of something really hideous, sadly, yes, yes. you know, I mean, the, well, I don't want to say the idea was born out of something hideous, but the notoriety and the, the spotlight that I got was because of bad behavior right. on people that had a reaction to him wanting to just cultivate people and get them the opportunities that they felt like they were missing in the marketplace. And then to see sort of that ugly you know, issue raise its head, you know, it's good to see those people because, you know, sometimes you got to turn the light on and see the roaches. You know, yeah. but at the same time, you know, you, you don't realize that sometimes the roaches are in the same room. With you. Um, <laughs> that, that was, that was disappointing. But I think that there's, there's time for, there's time for growth and it's happening. And I'd like to continue to see it moving in a, in a positive forward direction. Agreed. You have to set people up for success in order to, you know, to expect success out of them. And I think that's where our generation of producers really sort of come into play, you know, cause we've obviously done you know, what we can in this business and continue to, to, to move forward in it. But, you know, we've seen it grow from its infancy. So if there's anybody that can be a resource into how to survive or how to break into it or, you know, really sort of how to to cultivate a career in it, that's us. And so the, I think that's our, the onus is on us to really sort of help this next generation become as diversified as possible. Because look, the content is only going to continue to get more diverse. As the face of America changes, there's going to be the desire for representation in media and i think that we have to provide the producers and the, the staff that can accommodate those requests in terms of cord cutting you know it's it's obviously higher than ever before where are you seeing everything headed as a guy who's produced for you know a dozen different networks well, like the landscape is ever changing yeah. You know, I, you know, you get the all the, the updates from your agencies and stuff like this is what people are looking for. This is where this is going. This is what's happening now. Read this article, deadline this. You know, it's, sure. it's it makes your head spin because, you know, you really you get excited by new opportunities and new avenues for things. But there's so much out there, there's yeah. so much out there, which is great for demand for content. But, you know, I'm, I'm wondering sort of it's it's different for, I think, different areas of the country and for the world, to be honest. You know, so you've got like. You know, middle America, that's probably like, cable's cool, we're good, you know? But then yes. you have sort of the, the more sort of you know, faster pace on the, on the coast. You're like, yeah, I'm going to watch on my phone. I'm going to do this. I'm going to cut the cord. I'm going to, you know, I only like the housewives, so I'm going to watch Peacock. Right. Or right. who's got this? And, you know, it's it's cool because they, they do bring in outside programming that we wouldn't necessarily always be exposed to. Like there's a lot of international shows that people have never heard of that, that pop up in these things based on these licensing agreements. So, I mean, I think it's great that it really sort of diversifies the pool, but it also, I think it, you know, if you're, you know, like an old school guy like me, you're like, I'm excited for the ratings to come out. And you're looking at these numbers, you're like, 
wow, yeah, that's not what it used to be like. Yeah, know? we'll never see numbers like Joe Millionaire oh back in the day, four, yeah. forty million people watching an episode. You know, yeah. we'll never see that again because there is eleven nine million channels out there, or you can you know click and download and watch it at your leisure. Um, so I, I think it's really sort of all of us adjusting and figuring out sort of okay, well, what's what's our avenue, and and aligning yourself with a brand that's exciting to you too, you know, that, that allows you to really sort of produce the content that, that you're really interested in doing, because there's clearly a million and one options out there now. And I mean, I, I think, you know, Netflix, their scope is huge. You know, Peacock, their stuff's amazing. Like, there's all that stuff out there that really sort of opens this box really wide. Right. And you can dig in there and find whatever you want. Um, it's just about us keeping up with it. And, you know, it's about it serving the public you know, in a way that allows them to stay afloat too, because, you know, once there's too many things out there, something's going to suffer. Yeah. And I, I think what you said in terms of finding what you want is so key because it's easy to get overwhelmed with all these different choices, all these different platforms. You, if you switch from Netflix to Amazon to Hulu and now HBO Max and Peacock, you can get overwhelmed with all of the content very easily. And so I do think it becomes incumbent upon these different streaming platforms to really make it user-friendly. And I think whoever can do that has a better chance to succeed. Listen, I need to really update my, my password manager because I can't watch these things because I can't keep up with what my passwords are. So, but there is a lot out there, but it's really about figuring out like the marketing to the people that you really want to bring into yeah. to your niche, right? Yeah. Because, you know, there's there's just so much, like Quibi versus, you know, uh, Peacock versus Netflix versus, you know, HBO Max versus HGTV Go. Like there's so much going on that you just have to to fine tune something. Maybe I'll dedicate like one day a week to each channel and I'll just keep it moving that way. (laughs) (laughs) Tuesday's Hulu day. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) There you go. Um, I wanted to ask you about this um, just because, you know, it's something that we talk about as showrunners and really it's, it's in the zeitgeist. You know, I bring it up just because there was this big controversy about Ellen DeGeneres and her show, you know, and people coming out and saying that it was a toxic environment. That's the big phrase. And then Paul Telegdi, there was a big article in Hollywood Reporter that there was, again, a toxic environment there. And, you know, there's been this big battle between Gabby Union and Terry Crews and on AGT. Um, you know, as showrunners, you know, we're tasked with a lot from creative to logistics, but we also are supposed to bring a really creative, but also fun and, you know, good environment, healthy, you know, fun, good environment for everyone. How do you as a showrunner, you know, really try and bring that creative, fun, pleasant environment for everybody when there's so much stress on you? You know, it's it's a good question. I mean, I've been really fortunate on, on the shows that I've worked on where I've been able to roll crews over season after season after season and people come back. You know, it's like a 90% retention rate. But obviously you've got people that either, you know, not age out, but like, you know, move on to other produ- you know, productions for, you know, some career growth or whether it's PAs that, you know, have moved on or moved away or whatever the case may be. But 90% retention. So, you know, I think it's about really sort of setting up the environment to be something where people, A, feel appreciated and feel like they're part of the process, but also, you know, setting forth your expectations from the beginning and making sure that everyone that you're being surrounded with buys into what it is you guys are trying to do. Because at the end of the day, we spend more time with each other than we spend with our own families. So, A, why shouldn't that be a pleasant environment? 
but B, it's about something that shares all of our names and it should be something that we're proud to work on and that we are in an environment where everyone's efforts and you know um, contributions are appreciated because there's no way that just because someone has their name on a show as a showrunner, that show gets produced only by them. Yeah. You know, one, one thing that I say in our, you know, our, our uh, orientation meetings is like, this show has all of our names on it. All of you are contributors to it. It's important for you guys to speak up. If you guys think you have a better idea about how something should be done or you think the process should be handled a different way, by all means, speak up, especially if it affects your department. You know, you are contributors to this to make sure that this is a pleasant experience for everybody. And, you know, with that being said, you know, we talked about earlier about, you know, having worked in pretty much every, you know, uh, line on the call sheet that, you know, you know what the expectations are, but you're also not afraid to do those jobs yourself. Yeah. So if it's handing out call sheets, if it's, you know, making sure crafty's good, making sure the vans are cleaned out, you know, if you have to drive a van to go get gas, yep. uh, if you're helping, you know, edit story notes or, you know, sending out stuff to the, to the network for hot sheets, if you're not afraid to roll those sleeves up and get into it with people, A, it goes a long way for people to see that, you know, you're part of the process and, you know, you're just like them. But it's also, you know, you can say to them, well, I know this is how it has to be done because I'm doing it with you. Yeah. And I think that that goes a long way. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's really about making sure that these people that are giving their time, you know, yeah, so they're getting paid, but you know what? So what? They're people, you know, and you have to respect them for who they are and what they're bringing to the table. And you never know what people are going through in their personal lives and stuff. So you just need to make sure that you're making this the best place for them to want to be for the majority of their day for months and months on end. Yeah. I, you know, it's just important to me. Agreed. Agreed. hundred percent. Yeah. I always say a, a thank you and a good job go a long way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I try to write a thank you letter to the entire crew at the end of every season. You know, I'll, sometimes I'll do the, the handwritten thank you notes to each of the crew, make sure we get them, you know, wrap gifts you know, even if like the budgets don't support it, you know, pay it out of your pocket because at the end of the day, you're getting to do what you love because of the contributions of others. It's just important to recognize people for the work that they do. You know, there's so many people and I've seen it. I mean, I've been, I've been on shows like that where, you know, you're just a cog in the wheel and, you know, thanks for coming in. Cool. You know, but to make people feel like what they do matters and to realize that there are sacrifices that people are making to get that job done. It just, it goes a long way. It really, really does. And I think if we just appreciated each other more in this business, because it's tough. People don't realize, you know, we always joke about how, you know, if people only knew what it took to bring them 42 minutes of TV, yeah. they would never, you know, they would have no idea. Knowing the ups and downs that you guys go through just really gives me a better appreciation of people that you work with. You know, you're not always going to agree because that's what a family operates like, right? But yeah. you have to respect people and you have to respect who they are and what they're doing. So, I mean, at the end of the day, just be good people to each other. That's all that matters, you know? Indeed. Um, all right. I always end the show with uh, talking about what you're watching, um, you know, what's out there that uh, the audience should watch, what you're enjoying. Um, I watched a new show recently uh, called Love on the Spectrum, and it's on Netflix. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people have posted about that. Yeah. yeah, it's mm -hmm. really fascinating. So for the audience, it's um, a docu-series. I think it's British, um, but it's about this group of people who are on the spectrum and, you know, they're dating each each episode. You see them go through um, different dates and how they're adjusting to, you know, this these challenges of being on the spectrum and trying to find love, same as all of us. But 
it's really well done. Very to your, you've made many uh, points about authenticity. It feels very authentic and seeing how their parents support them, but also the struggles that they go to, which are very similar to all of us who are single. Um, and it, it's very heartwarming, but also painful to see them, uh, you know, go through those those uh, moments of, of awkwardness and struggle. So I, I highly recommend it. Is there anything that you're watching, Sean, that people should check out? You know, it's funny. You mentioned British TV because that's sort of my, my secret vice. Okay. Um, I, I love a good British murder mystery. Um, nice. Even, even the old school ones like Midsummer Murders or, you know, uh, Luther or Wire in the Blood. Okay. Vera, which you can find on PBS um, or Britbox. Um, but I really like, and it's, I know it's going to sound cheesy because, you know, everyone loves a relationship show, but um, <laughs> for, first, first Dates Hotel and First Dates, like the actual, the British version of the series oh, okay. is, is, is fantastic. And I don't know, but just because they, they just approach it slightly differently than we did here. Yeah. But there's, there is an authenticity to it that you feel like you're that person that's sitting at the next table listening in on everything right. that's happening. And yeah. it just, it sucks you in. And it's every walk of life, every cross section you can think of that's in there, you know, from like seniors dating to like, you know, newly out, you know, gay folks dating, or there's just like, there's, everybody is represented there. So it feels so inclusive, which is always great. But then you get to see like the awkward moments or when they go in the bathroom and call their friend and talk about what's going on. Yeah. All those, all those great things. It just, it, it makes you smile. And for you to see somebody who, you know, is out on a first date after, you know, either a miserable experience or they lost a loved one or whatever the case may be, and you feel them get that spark back, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. I love that show. Nice. Love that show. All right, cool. Yeah. That's that's my that's my vote. All right, very cool. All right. Well, now we have two shows for the audience to check out. All right. Uh well Sean, thank you so much for giving me some time. I know you're a busy man and uh, I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. All right, cool. All right. Well, that was another edition of No Script, No Problem. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, download, and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can also write a question if you have one. And I will answer it on the show. Email your questions to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks to Mike DeLay and Real Voice LA for the audio connection. And thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.